All right, we're going to be reading from John 20:11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she, told, she saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned, to, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for bringing us together today to celebrate the resurrection. Thank you for bringing us together in this community to share with one another. We pray that you speak through John and that you open our hearts so that way we can receive the message that he has for us. Please let us have a good day today. You're my pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. In the summer of 2007, I had the honor of working for Ben Kilgore's dad, John Wayne Kilgore. The Jewets know John Wayne Kilgore. And uh, John had been a worship leader, Ben's dad, at a church at Liberty uh, over uh, near the Ihide Union uh, for a long time. But his real passion uh, was, was gardening and putting in flower beds. And John was really, really, really good. And so the summer before my senior year, uh, through some connections, I was invited to work for John, and we did our interview at Chick-fil-A, and I uh, went, to, went to work the first day, and I learned how John Kilgore did his thing. And John was just a master. And so we would go to this house that had, you know, the, the standard green border and construction grade, uh, you know, plants and things, and it was overrun by weeds and, and vines and things like that, and we'd get to work, and, and the whole crew, we'd go in, and we'd start pulling weeds, we'd start pulling vines, we'd get rid of the old border until it was finally like a blank slate, and John would get out spray paints, and he would, he would like spray paint the new line, and we'd cut the new line for the flower bed in, and then he would always call Jim Dirt, and Jim Dirt out in West Tulsa would bring out a dump truck full of like uh, potter's mix. Uh, farmer's mix, and he'd bring it out, and we'd get like 50 or 60 wheelbarrows full of fresh soil, and it, t it was miserable in the Oklahoma heat, and we'd take the wheelbarrows full of soil up, and we'd put it into the beds, which were always really big, because John had a big vision for, for creating beautiful spaces, and we'd, we would get all of the fresh dirt into the beds, and it would be always elevated beds, so it'd be like at knee height, and John would take one of those hard rakes and he spent a, an incredible amount of time smoothing out the soil so that it was just right and the curvature of the soil was just right. And this was like John in his like holy place doing his thing. And before we would have gone to John Deere to the nursery out in South Tulsa and he like was very choosy and he picked out each individual plant that was going to go into the flower bed and if he was going to buy especially an expensive tree or shrub, he'd look at it and he'd look at it from different angles until he could find the front because it had a front. And, and he would quiz those of us who worked with him like, okay, what's the front? Okay, you're figuring it out. 
And so we would get all the soil in just right. We would place the plants. We'd bury the plants, always with a little bit of osmocote underneath them. Um, we'd water them in. And then the, the, my favorite part of the whole thing, we would get out Jamasco's pine bark mulch. And we'd open up the bag, and I know the smell anywhere. Like, I walk up to a house, and I know if they've used Jamascos. It was never cypress. It was never cedar. It was always pine bark mulch, and it was always Jamascos. And we put on so much of this stuff, and John would get out his hard rake again, and he would smooth it out. And then he'd, he'd coat it with just a little layer of water to keep down all of the dirt. And then, and then my favorite part, especially if we put out, like, a fresh stone border, John took out this little hand broom, and he was very serious, and he would just, he would go on every rock and gingerly sweep the dust into the flower bed, and then he'd stand back, and he'd just go, mmm, 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 and Ben knows I'm right. That was just like that, and uh, man, John, John loved what he did. He's a master gardener. Um, and he, he came in and he did this work of, of uh, taking out, removing the old stuff and replacing it with the new stuff. And John had this vision for creating beautiful spaces and something that we just so loved about John. And I say all that to say it's no accident that in the text that Brody just read, the Mary Magdalene mistakes Jesus for the gardener. Isn't that a funny detail? He mistakes him as the gardener. But in John's gospel, this is precisely the case that John is making, that Jesus is the gardener of God's new creation. Genesis, the first book in the Bible, starts out, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the beginning of John's gospel echoes those words, in the beginning there was the Word who was with God and was God. John is, is setting Jesus up to be the gardener of God's new creation, and over the last couple of months within Cornerstone, we've been talking about that there are times when we, we need a, a hard reset on our spiritual operating system. Now, if your computer is sluggish, you call the IT department, they're going to tell you first thing if you try turning it on and off again. And we need to do the same thing in our spiritual operating system at times. We need a hard reset. And God recognized that the spiritual operating uh, system of, of the people of Israel needed a hard reset. The things had grown sluggish, things had grown tired. Israel was not living into its calling. And so not only did the Father send Jesus to be the Savior and to be a teacher, to be a redeemer, to be a healer, He also sent Him to come and to be the gardener of God's new creation, removing those things that had grown stale and replacing them with something beautiful and fresh. And we see in the cross what we celebrated Friday night. I hope you were able to come as we worshiped with City Church Friday night. We see the removal of Jesus, the master gardener, coming in the cross to remove the works of the devil. That's what 1 John 3, 8 says. The Son of God appeared to not only remove but to destroy the works of the devil. And through the cross, what we remember on, on Good Friday, Jesus came to remove the stain of sin and the guilt that's on all of us. Maybe you remember Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. The woman who'd committed adultery walked around with that A on her. And we care because of the things we do, often carry around our own invisible letter representing our sin and the ways in which we've rebelled against God. And we carry the guilt of the things that we do. Jesus came through the cross to remove the guilt of sin from us. Uh, 1 John 1, 9 is the scripture that was read when I gave my life to Christ. He said, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us 
cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Jesus, through the cross, came to remove the stain of sin, the guilt of sin. Jesus, through the cross, came to remove the blame of sin, which is our accountability. We've been complicit in rebellion against our Creator. Jesus came to remove the blame, and He took it upon Himself. The 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Him, the one who had no sin, to be sin for us, to bear the blame of sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus came to remove the guilt of sin. Jesus came to remove the blame of sin. And Jesus came to rescue us from the power of sin, the oppressive power of sin. This is Colossians 1. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and he's brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. So that destructive task of taking out those vines and those rocks and all that's grown and turned us inward, but he's come to replace it. And that's what Easter Sunday is all about. On, the, on Good Friday, He came to remove. On Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, He came to replace what's now missing with something good and with something beautiful. There's resurrection and ascension. We've been given a new identity. No longer, our identity is no longer the letter that represents our sin on our chest. First John 3, 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we would be called God's kids. We'd be called children of God. We've been given a new identity and a new family. We've also been given a new spirit. Acts 1.8 says you'll receive power, empowerment when the spirit falls on you so that you can be my witnesses. Our body's no longer driven by a desire for self-destructive behaviors, but driven by the spirit of God. We're given a new identity, a new spirit. We're also given new fruit, which is great in this kind of gardening imagery. Uh, Galatians 5, and 23, the fruit of God's Spirit which has been given to us is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. The evidence of all these beautiful things that God is doing is to show up in our lives because of the witness of His Spirit. We've been given a new mission. In Matthew 28, just after the passage that was read earlier, Jesus gave this mission to His church. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me so go make disciples in all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he's also given us this new hope. What happened to Jesus in the middle of history is the hope for all of us at the end of it when Christ returns. That's why in our creeds we hold on to the resurrection of our bodies. That we're not just going to float away like in a Gary Larson cartoon and be on clouds and robes with harps in an ever-ending church service. Now these bodies are being resurrected like Jesus. And we see the story to give away the ending, Revelation 21 and 22, that in the end Christ returns and we experience the renewal of all things and the recreation of the heavens and the earth. This good and beautiful place that has been marred and destroyed by sin is going to be regenerated and renewed. And we're going to know creation like never before. Romans 8 talks about creation itself groaning for this to come. And the earliest witnesses to the resurrection, the disciples who had been dejected and grief-stricken because they thought Jesus was the guy, because of Easter Sunday, experienced this transformation. Because of what happened to him, there was cause, objective cause to believe that there could be hope in the world. 
And this was such a tangible change that they were willing to believe these things to the point of death. And they suffered. And we see that in, in, in the Acts of the Apostles in the New Testament. We see it in historical records like Josephus and uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs. That people were willing to believe these things to the point of death. Because Jesus was actually dead. And then Jesus was actually alive. And those early disciples believed that because of what happened... Everything he said was worth staking their life on. And so in the first century, word began to spread out of Jerusalem, out of the Jewish community, to Judea and Samaria, and Gentiles began to believe in these pagan communities that had been living in, in obscene and, and despicable ways began to experience transformation. The Roman culture where people would throw out babies into the street. We see the birth of orphanages as the church began to go out on mission and rescue these babies. We see the elevation of the role of women in society. People are experiencing major life transformation, and it's all tied to this guy, Jesus, who they said was dead and was the hope of Israel and was now alive and giving hope to the world. And what started out as this tiny sect within Judaism had spread and was going outward in concentric circles. Uh, I've been reading uh, the Chronicles of Narnia to my kids, the C.S. Lewis. I don't know if you've read these books. They're so good. And my family laughs at me now because, like, I'm guaranteed to weep through the last three chapters of any of the books in the series. And I get to Aslan, and I'm just like, it's... And Libby, Libby will say, Dad's crying again. But in, in the most popular book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Narnia is this land that's under the control of the White Witch, and it's always winter, and it's never Christmas. But all of a sudden, the land starts to thaw, and the, the word on the street is that Aslan's on the move. Aslan's this Jesus character. And as the children go throughout the land, they've not yet met him. They see grass popping up, and, and finally they, they meet Aslan. And wherever he pounces, he's this great lion. Flowers emerge, and trees blossom. And it's just, it's just absolutely, it's beautiful. It gives my heart imagination. And that's what C.S. Lewis was trying to do, to give us imagination for what the church was supposed to be. That because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, flowers were supposed to be in bloom. That where there was hopelessness, things begin to turn around. And I love how vivid it makes my imagination. A couple of months ago in, in my office, I had the chance to meet uh, with this guy named John who's from Damascus in Syria. And, and he, he's a Syrian. And he said, for years and years and years, the followers of Jesus in Syria, and there weren't that many, we're praying for God to do a revival in that country. And as you know, over the last six or seven years, the Arab Spring, uh, Syria is just in shambles. And, and the war in Syria is getting less press, and it's getting way worse. And John told me how they were praying for this kind of Narnia awakening. They were praying for a revival. They pictured it like a Billy Graham revival where they'd throw up the tent, and tens of thousands of people would come and give their lives to Christ so we asked for a Billy Graham revival, but God gave us a very different one. And in spite of ISIS' presence in the country, in spite of Bashar al-Assad's assault on his own people, God has been doing this amazing work of resurrection in Syria. And churches that were dying are now having like 14 worship services in a war zone. And the Lord is using ISIS to bring about a renewal of Christ's church. And people are seeing Jesus in dreams and visions. And in a world where it's always winter and never Christmas, gardens of resurrection are popping up. It's amazing. 
And even in our community of Cornerstone and in Tulsa, God's doing a great work where we see the thaw beginning. We see little buds uh, bursting out. And it's no less miraculous than what's happening in places like Syria. God is doing this beautiful resurrection work. And we look forward to the end when Christ returns and this resurrection work is completed and restored and fulfilled and our faith is made sight. And yet, that is not where we live most of the time. In fact, Emily, my wife, said maybe 10% of the time. I think that's probably an optimistic figure. It feels like we're living this kind of resurrection life. Most days my life doesn't feel like a resurrection victory. Most days my life doesn't feel like I'm swept up in this grand narrative because I've got Tuesdays. And I've got, you know, a frustrating Friday where honestly I don't really want to be with my kids and I've got bills to pay and someone needs to mow the lawn and I really need to catch up with that person and life feels very mundane and typical and frustrating and I'm battling my vices and I'm not yet the person that I want to be. And so sometimes I'm tempted, I love my charismatic friends, I'm tempted to join in with my charismatic friends and start praying in faith that we have instantaneous transformation today and naming and claiming the person that we're going to be and the transformation of our institutions that are broken and frustrating all of us. And then when it doesn't happen, I feel frustrated and ashamed. Well, maybe if I'd had more faith. But I'm reminded when it came time for Jesus to explain the way that he worked, And even in this moment of of Christ's greatest triumph of resurrection, we see this garden imagery. When it came time for Jesus to explain how his kingdom worked, he chose the imagery of gardens and not gunshots. A kind of growth and transformation that was slow and steady rather than instantaneous and right now and sudden. And it seems that while God can do absolutely anything that God wants, God could could change things on a dime, the normal operation of the Spirit is less like a pistol firing and more like a plant that's putting down roots slowly. And if you're staring at it, you might not even notice it happening. And it occurs to me that the master gardener might be doing his resurrection work, not just in the the sexy and flashy moments of a church service, but in the normal and the mundane activities of our everyday lives. That this is the context in which God is slowly turning things around and building his resurrection garden in the mundaneness of the Sunday through Saturday life. Jesus told this story about how God was working in the world to share good news. He said a farmer went out to sow his seed and he was throwing it everywhere. He was really liberal, maybe even irresponsible, getting the seed out there. And the seed, which represented the word, landed among different types of soil. And sometimes it it landed among the thorns. And the the thorns would choke out the seed as it tried to grow. And as Jesus explained the parable, he says, these are the people who, man, they want to believe. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it out. And then there was the, the seed that landed among the rocks, and again, an eager response, but because it had no roots, it withered and died in the sun. And these are the people who accept the, the message with joy, but then consider the cost, and they just can't do it. Then there's the seed that landed on the path, and before there was even a chance, the birds came and they snatched it up, and these are those who could hear the gospel, but the devil snatches it up in their hearts. 
And then finally, he says, they're those who, who receive the word with joy. They're like good soil. And that word puts down deep roots, and it throws up tall shoots and produces good fruits, and it yields a harvest. As we consider how the Christ, the, the master gardener, is working, I wonder what kind of soil you identify with. I wonder whether you're, you're eager to believe, but you're so worried about money. You're eager to believe, but, but you, you've not taken the time to get some rocks out of the way or cooperate with the work of the Spirit to get some rocks out of the way. And so there's not even a chance that roots are going to get down. Or maybe you're a person who's been cooperating with the work of the Spirit and there's a chance for God's Word in you to produce fruit. So as we think about this image of the garden, I wonder and I'd ask you, one of you, have you invited Jesus, the master gardener, to remove the rocks and the rubble? You asked him to pull out those weeds and those vines that would kill any plant. Have you, are you carrying around the guilt of sin, the blame of sin? Are you under the power of sin? Have you asked Jesus, the master gardener, to remove that from you? He can do it. That's what Resurrection Sunday is all about. And are you cooperating with him to, to turn, in, turn you into a garden of resurrection, showing the fruit of his spirit in you, giving you a new identity, a new mission? Have you asked Jesus to do this? Usually it doesn't happen in flashy and sexy ways. Usually it's in the hard work of gardening, of trusting the sun and the water to do its work as the roots pull the nutrients from the soil. So I'd end today with this prayer I found online. It's, I stole it. Sorry, I should, wish I'd gotten it from a cool book or something. I say, may Christ, the gardener of God's new creation, grow us slowly and persistently and deeply. Amen. Well, those who are serving, go ahead and come. Uh, we're going to share communion this morning. The early church believed that not only... In gathering around the table, do we tell and retell the story of the gospel every week? But we share in the one who first gave that first meal. That in a mysterious way, by the presence of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, the gardener of God's new resurrection community, God's new creation, is with his church in the breaking of the bread and the sharing of the wine. So this morning, as, as these folks come and we get ready to tell the story, I'd invite you just to, to pray with me. And then we'll, we'll share. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, Jesus. And thank you to, that in the quiet way that you work, you're still growing a garden of your new creation. We're drawn to, to sights and sounds. We're drawn to quick transformation because of the cost. And yet you work slowly and patiently. Would you work slowly and patiently in us? Would you remove the sin and the deceit and the worries, protect us from the enemy that would, that would bar your growth from happening in us, and would you replace all of that with the fruit of your spirit, with the presence of your spirit, with the mission that you've given your church, this new family? And as we wait for you to come, we wait and hope and we make our prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread 
and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.